Hi there, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org as well as via our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. If you like what you see, then please do support the show by subscribing, liking and reviewing the show. A quick written review, five stars, would be really, really helpful. It helps make the visibility of the programme even more. It helps us reach more listeners and it helps justify what we're doing to our employers. Um, So please, please take a minute out of your life to help the show. It would really help us create more content for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy the latest episode. again listeners and welcome to another episode of the fantasy animation podcast i'm alex Sargent, and i am chris holiday and a very confused chris holiday (laughs) i suspect Uh. uh, because finally after how many episodes i've managed to get you to do something with dragons in it i can remember from when we sat down to record episode one on snow white you went you're not going to make me do too many like things with dragons in are you yeah Uh, and the answer was no but at some point i would have my revenge and it is this day yeah um today we're doing how House of the Dragon, HBO's prequel series to Game of Thrones, a series very near and dear to my heart, and a series I've published on and written about and thought about quite a lot, and one we've never had time to do on the podcast, so I'm excited to do a kind of go to uh, revisit Game of Thrones by thinking about House of the Dragon, because I think it's a really interesting series in a number of different ways, and plenty to say, of course, in relation to, to fantasy and world building and high fantasy, and a kind of, uh, you know, post-9-11 uh, riff on Tolkien mythology. Oh, there's loads to say about it in terms of fantasy. Chris, anything VFX-y, animation-y that uh, struck you watching it fresh? Uh, yes. For the, for the purposes of this episode. Yes, both, uh, I suppose, obviously dra- dragons, but dragons in the sense of connections to dr- between dragons and dinosaurs and why dragons and dinosaurs are so rife for uh, animation and, and, and VFX. And, and we talked a little bit about this when we did the Land Before Time, but dragons seem to be this this anchoring point or or something that, that grounds a potential. To, one could do the history of VFX just looking at the representation of dragons throughout, throughout animation, I would say. So something on dragons, um, something on kind of digitally enhanced landscapes. I was doing some research into where it was filmed versus the sort of augmented blue screen green screen um, digital space and then I guess broader questions around why fantasy and animation work really well or lend themselves really well to franchise storytelling and long-form television because I think there's something to be said about about things we think about fantasy and things we think about animation that makes them so such useful material for for this kind of expansive world building which is obviously something we've touched on before but I'm going to be led by you and our very special guest today because this is this is my wheelhouse is is over there but I'm quite far yeah. away so I'm interested yeah. in what we're going to talk yeah. about so let's introduce our very special guest. We're we're delighted today to be joined by Professor Kim Acas from Rowan University. Uh, uh, Kim is in charge of the uh, MA uh, and dual degree in Television Studies at at Rowan. Uh, she's the co-editor and contributor to a number of different publications, including Reading Sex in the City, Reading Six the Under, Reading the L Word, Reading Desperate Housewives. Uh, Kim really is a, a supreme authority on all things televisual, um, uh, as well as her books. 
quality TV, contemporary American TV and beyond. Uh, she's one of the founding editors of the television journal Critical Studies in Television. Uh, she manages the website uh, CST Online, which academics will know yeah. um, for their wonderful weekly emails. Um, it's a it's an inspirational website for, for fantasy animation and the work we do. So uh, another wonderful um, thing on the CV. And if that were not enough, she's also currently uh, finishing up a book on the representation of motherhood in television uh, entitled Mothers on American Television from Here to Maternity. And we'll talk more about that towards cool. the end of the show. But for now, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me, Alex and Chris. I just want to say it's the kiss of death. As soon as you say I'm the expert on TV, I'm going to forget everything. So, well, well, welcome you know, to podcast. As you know, yeah. Wikipedia away. Uh, it's all allowed here. So yeah, that's absolutely fine. Uh, no, well, Kim, you'll be very modest because um, I've, I've encountered your work numbers of times and I've always really uh, enjoyed your take on the kind of, you know, George R. R. Martin Game of Thrones mythology and, and your particular kind of uh, critical lens viewing it through the perspective of gender and specifically the representation of motherhood um, in these in these shows. So I guess to start us off, um, what got you interested in, 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 in House of the Dragon and more broadly Game of Thrones? Um, why is it an interesting text to talk about in, through that through that angle as far as you're concerned? Well, um, it's a long story, really, but I'll keep it short. So Game of Thrones well, it came onto TV and I was like, oh, God, it's got nothing to do with me. The, I saw a couple of episodes and just thought, this is such a misogynist world. I cannot watch it anymore. And then one by one, um, the female academics, uh, in my, my colleagues, wrote and said, have you seen this? You must watch this. You're writing about motherhood. It's all about motherhood. And I thought, well, that's a bit weird. How can it be all about motherhood? Because it's about fighting and fantasy and men. And then, you know, behold, I think by two or three episodes in, you realise that motherhood is at the centre of Game of Thrones because women have no power. The only power they have is to bear the next king or queen, whichever way it goes. Um, so actually, there is a really interesting representation because they're so powerful and yet they have no power. So that's how I got into Game of Thrones. And then, of course, once yeah. I was in, I was hooked and um, House of the Dragon came out. And I, again, I resisted and thinking, can I really dive into another 10 year series? I, you know, there's too many hours in the day. But, you know, stuck in America with very little else to watch but American TV. Um, and now being a subscriber to HBO, we started to watch it. It's me and my husband. And um, immediately, House of the Dragons seemed so different from Game of Thrones because women are really thrust centre. And, you know, from the very first episode, I was hooked, much more so than I was with Game of Thrones um, because it seemed so much more family-oriented. I mean, certainly the first season's all been about family and power games within the family. Um, and the motherhood in the series is just, you know, jaw-dropping, really, what they do with motherhood. So that's that was my entrance to it. So let's let's set the scene for Chris's benefit and for this, this benefit. Um, um, uh, obviously, House of the Dragon is a prequel series to Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is about lots of different warring families, and this picks up a kind of prologue story um, focusing on one family, the Targaryens, who in the original series are kind of this mythical, uh, the family that used to rule 
the kingdom, but has now sort of been on the wane. And I suspect what we'll see over this series and what is being teased is the is the the war the, the decline of the House of Dragon. It could it could be called fall of the House of Dragon in, in many ways, right? So so it, that's just a useful way of grounding this discussion because I think it's I, I, when I was watching it and I loved the series as well, not least because of how disappointed I was watching. Uh, Amazon's Lord of the Rings. I was. This was a real tonic booster in terms of what you can do to kind of keep these oh. franchises going and make them different and make them interesting. I think one of the things to think about is 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 the function of 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 prequels actually a little bit in terms of all, all lots of things we could talk about. We could talk about the prequel in terms of as a kind of cynical franchise enterprise, but also in terms of talking about some of the themes you're you're interested in because essentially what we're watching here which is kind of there in Game of Thrones but much more abundant in House of Dragon is an, is we're watching a tragedy unfold aren't we it's it's a we, we start at a point of relative mm. stability and we know it's going to go downhill from there um so i would just i just i spent a lot of time thinking about that whilst watching the show because I'm trying to work out if it is a tragedy. What is what is the what is the moral of the story? Or what's the message of the tragedy? And I think gender plays a really interesting role in this because, in many ways, the the fall of the house of the dragon seems to be a series of of um, failures to properly recognise or engage with the role of women in in this society a little bit so i don't know did, did, did this strike you there sort of it's interesting that some of the the ways in which this story kicks into gear very much is about women trying to 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 have more say and agency within a society that denies them that say and the kind of tra the tragedy of not allowing that yeah i absolutely agree alex i think if they just listened to the women there wouldn't be another series afterwards you know that would be the end of the house of the dragon I, you know, I think the thing for me is it starts with Viserys, who's just the most peace-loving king, right? He's, you know, he's got a lovely wife and everything seems very fine until his wife dies, giving birth. He has to make that terrible choice. Is he going to save the queen or the newborn? And, of course, he makes the choice to save the newborn, which is his heir. He's got no male heirs to the throne. Um, so he loses the queen, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. And the next thing is, it's about very much that relationship with the childhood friends, Alison, and I'm going to get the name wrong, Rhaenerys. So those two are really central to the story right from the very beginning. And this idea of, um, as, you know, we've seen it with our king at the moment and what happens with the royal family. You know, you only get a queen on the throne if there's nobody else around to do it which is really sad. Um, so, you know, we've got Alison and we've got uh, Rhaenerys who are both really good friends. And then immediately it's set up what's going to happen with the, the lion to the throne. And because he's such a peace-loving king and he's fair and you know it's all going to go wrong for him because he can't exist in this world, he hands the, um, eventually hands it over to Rhaenerys and says, you will be heir to the throne. And that's where all the trouble starts because then he marries her best friend. It's like, you know, rookie mistake. Do not do that. So, and then he has more children. So it is all about the women for me. That's, and it's, but I think, you know, I'm very biased because whenever I watch any of these kind of really big sprawling series, I find that you have one narrative that you follow because you just yeah. can't ca carry on with the rest, you know. And I've, I've really focused on the women. And I think that this is, 
mm. both female oriented and even up to the last episode you know the both of the queens or the queen mother and um queen Rhaenyras, as she's been crowned in the end are both saying they don't want war let's work this out you know they know that the north the big big fight with them mm. uh, what they called the white walkers and the war with the north is coming and so both of them Number one, Alison doesn't want to kill her childhood friend, which was she goes against the advice. And then secondly, you've got Rhaenyras, who doesn't want to kill her childhood friend either. And they both want peace. And I think that's a really interesting way to start the series. And the whole season is playing that yeah. out. It occurs to me that that, tr that, you know, I mean, writers have spoken about the kind of link between um, tragedy and kind of the, the, cla the, the, the feminine position within a position within a within a patriarchal society right this is why like 50s melodramas are often sort of seen through a feminist lens and that they're very good at articulating the female position mm. as as it's a position of denial and a, a, an inevitable kind of downfall because of the the, the kind of lack of access to 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 to, 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 to autonomy uh, for want of a better word and, I, and it did strike me watching it and, mm. and i think that perhaps the only difference is that whilst in a in a you know in a way this is a kind of weepy melodrama where sort of women are turned against one another or denied access to their pleasures and their desires and their aspirations the difference is, is that like you know a circuit melodrama ends with them sort of falling on the lawn crying uh this ends with rage yeah and the last shot mm. is this shot of of absolute yeah um, vengeful, uh, yeah, uncontained rage, and I and I wondered what that said because I think that's a really interesting mm. thing to play with because in many ways, women are allowed to be lots of things in 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 this world and indeed in our own male dominated society, but 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 angry isn't really one of them. Mm. Mm. And yet, there's um, you know the Tiger Mom, the uh, famous kind of book recently that was all about that anger of mother and what you'll do to protect your children and i think you're absolutely right alex i think it taps into that idea that women can't be angry and i think again that runs through the whole season that the women aren't angry they're just learning to live as we call it under the radar they're kind of you know plotting their way through but with the death <laughs> oh sorry spoiler alert anyone who hasn't seen it I won't say which one dies, but yes, I should say we're going to we're going to talk about series uh, episode nine and ten in, in in specific. So if you have not seen nine and ten, stop when we get to yeah. that. But uh, yes, we'll, we'll keep yeah. Going but this is not the best way to consume the show. Everyone. No. Don't watch it the other way around, then listen to this. Do it right way around. Totally, totally do it the other way around. Yeah, just pause now, go off and watch it, and then come back. Re reassess how yeah, exactly, you're doing Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I think the thing is, she's, um, Rhaenyra's has shown real um, self-control as, um, what's her name, the other one that's um, Rhaenys, the queen that never was. Yes. You know, this is not going to get so complicated. I'll do a crib we should sheet. just give them. It's all right. I'll put, I'll put together a crib <laughs> oh sheet. Oh my god! Uh... So Renish, Renish, she absolutely it should be the she's the queen that never was. She should have been really angry all the way through. And the men keep saying, to the, "Well, why aren't you angry?" I mean, Damon says to Renish, "Why aren't you angry?" And she says, "Well, you know, anger doesn't get us anywhere, really." But then when she has the terrible tragedy at the end, which is always everyone's worst nightmare. You know, you lose your parents, you lose friends, but to lose a child is the thing yeah. that will kick her off. And I think even with her anger, it's a really measured anger. You can see she's absolutely destroyed by the news, especially as she's the one who mm. sent him off to do her bidding. 
Um, and it just taps into a well that I don't think even she yeah. knew existed. And I think that, you know, that's made really clear at that end. And, and her, that final shot of her, I think it just shows everything. It's, it's not just anger, is it? it's despair. It's, you know, how can she move forward from this, especially as her dad's just died. But let's not forget that Sarah's has just died and she's found out, you know, they were keeping her away from the news and then she finds out and loses her baby as a result. So, you know, it's also tied in. It's it's so much about the family, this series, so much, which it has to be. And I think that's the thing that everybody's complained about is it's too close. It's not enough characters. Thank God there weren't more because we'd have been in real trouble today. Um, but, you know, it is. It shows how everything centres on the family. And, and again, you know, look to our own royal family and everything that's been going on there. It's all about the firm, right? It's all about what goes on in the family and then the, how that spills out into the rest of the world. Well, I think just on that note, of, well, it, it struck me in relation to the way that the firm plays against, say, um, uh, Meghan Markle it's really about how the firm navigates or the place of the unruly woman within within these sorts of kinds of structures and and I'm interested in the unruly woman from the position well first of all unruliness in relation not just to, to Kathleen Rowe writing about unruly femininity in the mid-90s but actually about the sort of post-16 and you, you know see a lot of publications around uh, connected to the nasty woman and, and kind of Trump's relationship with Hillary Clinton calling her this nasty woman and this rise of scholarship um, mm -hmm. that is really about female aggression but also ruthlessness that gets bracketed under maybe anger and rage and and there's there's right there's writing on the nasty woman mm -hmm. and, and um, kind of femme fatale neo-femme fatales in contemporary cinema there's there's books that kind of speak to the the progressive i mean i'm interested in relation to i'm really woman through action cinema and sort of post 16 hollywood action cinema and the, the the lone the lone woman narrative so your atomic blondes um stuff like that and then also how that then moves into to, i suppose fantasy genres and franchises and things like dark phoenix and uh, One yeah. WandaVision is probably a really good good example, and I was reminded of I think it's in Doctor Strange and the and the Multiverse of Madness, which is an episode that we we surprisingly did topically, I think, Alex, from for our previous episode, where Wanda says uh, to Doctor Strange, "You break the rules and you become the hero. I do it and I become the enemy. That doesn't seem fair." And there's lots and lots of ways I think that 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 yeah. fantasy and in, and in combination with visual effects portrays this unruly femininity through. Um, House of the Dragon, sort of through, given that the last shot of the series is a is a close up shot of female rage. I was thinking about its role as a prequel to kind of get us to Game of Thrones, which I'm not familiar with, um, not familiar with at, at all. But but how it it lingers on that moment, and then thinking about this is actually a really topical and important, you know, timely. Of course, all these things are uh, less about the time they're set and more about the time in which they're released and produced and released. Yeah. But it's fun just say, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of the unruly woman. I mean, I love the unruly woman. Um, but I just, it worries me that if, you know, women have to either be unruly or they can be tamed and kind of con contained under patriarchy. And if you're unruly, then... There's all these expectations that you're going to go mad. You know, you're, you're going to be the one that breaks all the boundaries and, you know, too fat, too loud, too slutty. Yeah. And that they're just so, it's so negative. And I think that's the beauty of Renera's is that, you know, she isn't unruly at the end. 
she she's she's angry but i get the feeling that she's going to really channel that anger and work with it so she doesn't have to become unruly you know i hope however there's you know i think that you know there are hints to her unruliness because of the absolute um the objection of the birth scenes you know and you you see her you know the first time she gives uh, gives birth in the series and then go not the first time but the first time we see it and she has to get out of her bed with her newborn to go and see Alison because she knows that she has to do it and then she just leaves this trail of blood on the concrete floor and you can see i mean really suffering and then indeed this last the last episode where she gives birth to the um stillborn child it's all mm. blood you know, it's, it, and that's at the root of the unruly woman is this, you know, no respecting of borders. And it is all kind of goes back to, I always think yeah. it goes back to motherhood. You're thinking of Barbara Creed and um, yeah. uh, the monstrous feminine. If you've read that, of course you have, everybody has. But it's, um, it's you know, it's exactly about that. It's about liminality and objection. And, you know, the stuff that then gets absorbed into the horror movie. And I think what you're seeing is that kind of coming back a bit in Game of Thrones. So there's always lots of bloodshed, but you never see this kind of maternal bloodletting and pain and suffering yeah. that you see in House of the Dragon. And that's that's where my fascination lies. I was really struck by that that sequence in in episode ten. There's a there's a few as, as you rightly point out, Kim. There's a few of these sort of sequences that have been a topic of fan ire and and sort of discussion, haven't they? Of this sort of um, this extremely um, graphic, uh, realistic, bodily representation of of birth mm. at various points. What struck me about this one in, in episode ten is it's actually played against a montage. Of 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 Matt Smith's character, her husband, the Damon. Da okay, I was, oh yeah, fine, Damon. I was going to call him Philip, but Damon, yes. So her husband, also uncle, um, and 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 it's a sort of montage of of two things happening at the same time in a kind of Godfather Part Two esque mm. kind of. It seems to be inviting the the, the spectator to to make parallels and draw similarities or metaphors between the two things. Mm. And I was trying to work out what it was saying about that because on, it, we, we've got uh, um, Matt Smith raging war and kind of there's this kind of uh, violence he's inflicting on others at the same time as as um, uh, Rhaenerys is, 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 is having, you know, they're the kind of, having to go through you know what what all women who give birth will go through is this sort of the violence of of birth and 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 and, and the trauma of birth mm. so i i just i so i just watched that scene again and again and you're forgetting the dragon the cutting in of viserys as well oh not viserys that's right. it yeah so the dragon i can't remember the dragon's name i can only remember the I characters the dragon. yeah I can't forget you the can't dragon. forget right, the dragon and fine. then chris you can come no. in with dragon stuff so the dragon, <laughs> so it cuts between Matt Smith, um, right. Damon and um, Rhaenerys and the dragon, her dragon. And I think it's really, really important, that scene. And I'm sorry if I'm reading too much right. into it, but yes, you're absolutely right. There is, it is cut between her and her husband and he's off preparing for war. And something I've just been reading, it says that it's actually about the war within her own body. 
and it's kind of okay. it's signs of what's going to happen and I, I think it's actually really convincing because you know when you give birth it is a war with your own body there is absolutely no way there's anything else you know especially in those days no painkillers you know nothing no anesthetic just if you're going to have the, just cut it out of me and I'll die and let the baby live so it it does you know and she's she's due as uh, she ha- gives birth early so she's not due yet so she's not actually mentally and emotionally prepared for it so it comes as something like a bolt out of the blue and so she is actually at war with her own body while her husband is out there preparing for war with the seven kingdoms or the high towers or whatever but then being cut with the dragon as well and i just think that is so powerful because that precedes the bit where Luke and Eamon are having the, the dragon fight right at the end. And it for me, it shows the link between the women riders and their dragons. It's, it's like the female riders are part of the dragon. As, as she says at the end, you know, we're nearer gods and humans, and part of that is their bond with the dragons. I feel a bit mad actually because I'm taking this all so seriously. But if 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 you if you, embra- if you embrace that impulse, Kim, we won't have a podcast. No, so no, you're, gonna, exactly. you're, gonna, you're gonna fight it. I'm afraid it's all true. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, no. <laughs> the wife of the sea snake, the queen that never was, Rhenis. You know, when she bursts into the coronation on her dragon, she doesn't utter any instruction at all. The dragon just knows not to burn the king and the king's mother. And then she just sweeps out. What a wonderful moment that was. She is like, mm. she's majestic in that, that moment. And then if you counteract that, which comes after the birth scene, when you've had that linking with Rhaenerys and her dragon, and then you come to the end where both of the boy riders are totally out of control. You know, they, when um, young Luke gets onto his dragon at the end, he says, obey me, listen to instructions, focus. And he gets up on the dragon and off he pops, followed by Aemond on his massive dragon. I mean, who's going to win that battle? It's got to be him. But then at the end, he doesn't intend to kill Luke. It's because both his dragon will not obey. Both of their dragons won't obey. And I just came away with the feeling that if it was women on the back, the dragons would have yeah. just known what they wanted. They would not have done that. So that I think that's so important, that scene, because it really links women with, with the dragons. And let's face it, they're the real force in this. They have been in Game of Thrones, and they are now. And so I think that's why that scene's so very important, because it kind of delineates mm. the characters so well. Mm-hmm. I had I kind of had thoughts as you were... Well, first of all, I was thinking back to the title sequence, and you said... Um, kind of through these birthing scenes in the image of blood and i wondered obviously that the title sequence is is essentially this played out through visual effects and you have all the blood kind of moving to all corners of of the across the cobblestones and, and everything and obviously that immediately seems to author it as a as a female space it's i don't know there's something yeah there's yeah. there's but there's also going back to the, the horror genre i remember doing a, a class with richard dyer on serial killers and he was talking about leaking bodies which seems exactly to tie in with what you're saying around pregnancy and the battle that one has with with their own body um and mm. i suppose i was all yeah i mean i don't know the the 
either of the, the the series particularly well but the connections we've made this i think when we've done studio ghibli films around images of childhood and particularly young femininity and images of flight and um i think yeah. uh, uh, even even how to train your dragon as a as a series as a film series and as a television series kind of connecting images of flight and 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 uh, mobility and movement with with an ascension to adulthood um mm. and also that's why i think that's why I think the end of the series is so shocking too, because you sort of assume that the child's going to escape because he comes out of the storm into the sunlight and you think, oh, okay, so he's mm. in, a, in a program that's all about dynasties and legacies and genealogies and bloodlines right from the, right from mm. the title sequence. One assume, and, and given what we know that it's a prequel, one assumes that we're looking, that this character will now have the chance, be afforded the chance to, to look forward. And actually that's what mm. is, is, is sort of shocking for me at the same time, knowing for well these series delight in killing off its most famous, its most mm. famous people, which is yep. you know, part of the, part of the pleasure. So I don't know. And I think this is maybe the challenge partly with franchises and fantasy franchises. And maybe this is something that kind of Alex speaks to, especially when they're prequels and you need to get the audience to a particular point. But at the same time, you don't necessarily know how many series the network's going to let you have. And at what point you could be cut off and you think, well, I need to do every episode needs to be a potential endpoint because we might not come back. And I know this has a, a second series. And obviously in the case of adaptations, there are books and one can plan ahead and all this sort of stuff. But f fantasy seems, I, I guess I'm intrigued by the, the role of franchises in fantasy because you have to adopt, uh, um, follow a mythology. You have to not ruin a mythology. And it seems to be a lot more intensified in, in stuff like fantasy and science fiction, of course, maybe because of fan communities, but it seems, it seems like this series is, it, it was only after I watched episode 10, I thought, oh, there aren't any more now. Oh, that is, oh, I just watched the end mm. of the series. Oh, I thought there were 12. I thought there were, so I don't know. There's, I'm interested in fantasy franchises and why, why fantasy as a, as a genre, let's say in this case is, is so rife for mm. this sort of expansive storytelling. And it's more than just worldhood. Mm. I think, I think it's something, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but the way that this series kind of slow yeah. builds because it's all about these genealogies and bloodlines, it seems to work really nicely with, with, mm. with industrial structures of through lines and consistency and sons of and looking at the cast list. So many, the young version of this character, they're so sprawling. And I, I don't know, I don't know where, where I'm going with this, but I just find it interesting that that fantasies, this one in particular so much hype around the, the prequel to, to Game of Thrones and, and how this might relate to the way that we consume fantasy in these. I don't know, Alex, you've obviously written on mm. world building and, and Game of Thrones, but it's yeah, obviously yeah, tied yeah. into this in some form. But I think it's also more than world building. It's, it's something else. The narrative of fantasy seems to lend mm. itself. Well, I think when, when these things are just done to kind of expand on a, on a world you know, level and when it's when it's Phantom Menace and it's oh here's some galaxies you've not been to and here's that character who's a boy but you'll be oh it'll be later be a day you know yeah. all that stuff. That's where things get very banal and very mm. trivial. What I really like about this is because it's it, it actually doesn't do a lot of world building. Mm. I mean, it does a lot of yeah. character building yeah, and yeah, lore yeah. building, but but the the geography, the typography, all that stuff. We we sort of if you've seen Game of Thrones, you know where you are. You know, you, you you know, there's the, there's a little bit of nodding and winking when various right, characters right. visit, you know, the ancestors of other ancient characters and all that sort of stuff. But it's not really consumed with that. What it seems to be more interested in, and this is what I'm more interested in, is like, is having a using the prequel as a virtue and having a dialogue mm. with the stuff you already know, 
And, and to me, that like we're talking about the dragons and that sequence you, you mentioned there, Kim. And I think you're right because the the, the only the only time we're, the, the characters we're most familiar with flying on dragons is is Amelia Clark, is, is Daenerys Targaryen, the mm-hmm. kind of standout character from Game of Thrones, the mother of dragons. Linking back to you, absolutely. Motherhood. She in that in that she is not she, her her children are her dragons. Mm-hmm. That's kind of made very obvious. It's very explicit, and there is an absolute maternal link between her power which is ultimately unruly and and the series finds the need to kind of make mad and then destroy um, the power of the dragon and her maternal power. Mm. With this and in that sequence, you're absolutely right. It seems to be suggesting that it's almost doing a correction of that damage it did to that character because it seems to be both both celebrating that maternal bond, celebrating the, the rider and the dragon as as a maternal structure and therefore kind of acknowledging that these these men running around on dragons treating them like great big fallacies one's mind's bigger than yours mm-hmm. are ultimately never going to never never going to be mastery of this process because it's not a it's not a it's not a paternal force it's yeah. not a it's not a, a patriarchal force it's a maternal uh, force which sounds really really interesting and I hadn't thought about it until that point but yeah and so I think having a dialogue with Game of Thrones is very profitable mm. to read those sequences in a nice nuanced manner so I, I like what it's doing there. Mm. Also I mean I must say that I I think for the writers it must be such a relief because they know where they're going and I would imagine yeah. that HBO said to them right you know take five seasons and get to the beginning of Game of Thrones or, you know, go off somewhere else. So I think that, you know, there are so many different families that they can do prequels, mm-hmm. sequels, spin-offs, whatever you want to call it, or rebooting. You know, there's all these words that are banded around for adaptations of some kind. And I think, you know, the, the big problem with Game of Thrones was that George R. R. Martin didn't finish it. He hadn't finished the book series until after I don't know if he's even done it now because I kind of gave up on waiting and didn't read the books anyway, to be honest. Um, But this time they know where they're going. How much better and how much easier. I mean, it's not easy to write, otherwise I'd be doing it and making loads of money and living in Hollywood. But um, it's got to be easier to have the narrative arc already plotted out for you. And it's just how you get from here to there. And you know, there's a specific timeline and so to start small, it's, it, just to say, I mean, I, I went back and I looked at the episode um, uh, review or the episode um, contents of the final episode of Game of Thrones, because that's obviously with a motherhood thing. That's where Daenerys comes out of the pyre. She's lost her, her child. She's lost her husband. She's burned the witch. And then she walks into the funeral pyre with her eggs and then comes out as mother of dragons. Which is very, very powerful in the way that this is very powerful at the end of House of the Dragon. But there were so many people in it. Oh, my God. I couldn't even remember these characters. You know, it was just like this huge sprawl of different people. Uh, I think that what House of Dragon has done really well is to bring it down to that two central families. As well, I mean, maybe a few more, but it's centrally between Alicent and Rhaenerys. That's the beginning of it. Yeah. And so for me, it is much easier to understand. And even then, I'm finding it very difficult. There's so many blonde heads going around and who's married. To, oh, I thought that was his sister. Oh, no, it's his wife now. Yeah. So all of that stuff. Mm. 
But even so, it's much trimmed. It's much more focused. And it really is about the family in the beginning of this terrible war that then comes to Game of Thrones. Mm. And I think it's, it really is um, a positive on the, on the part of this series. I think it's easier to get. What wasn't so easy is jumping forward in time. And it was like, I turned it on and I thought I'd missed three episodes or something in between the young Rhaenyra's growing up and the older one. I mean, that was a nightmare that people kept changing characters. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's doing really well. And I think it is um, very focused, very tight. And I think it's going to be better than House of Dragon, she says, putting her neck right out there, uh, better than Game of Thrones because of that tightness to the narrative that we didn't have with Game of Thrones. Yeah. Two, two things to, to, to I'd love you to defend the series for two accusations I will throw at it because we've been very positive until now but if we can find positive solutions to this mm. I'm very up for it because mm-hmm. I'm a big fan I think there are two things one just struck me for what you're saying there about the casting thing obviously there's this thing in the series where um, characters you know age so you know Alicent's played by two actors mm. uh, Rhaenyra's played by two actors others age there is, a, I mean, Chris, you can chime up here because you're very interested in aging in films and the process by which characters yep. are aged. But it does do that standard thing for some practical reasons and other less practical reasons. Of obviously, Matt Smith's allowed to remain uh, the same age throughout <laughs> the whole uh, series. Mm-hmm. So Matt Smith's just got. I think I think they might have painted a wrinkle on his forehead between episode one and mm. and episode ten, whilst the others have had to metamorphosize into different young women um, and, and and older actors and things like that uh and so it seems to be men men and and given that a lot of fans voiced their kind of displeasure at the fact that you kind of you settled into one vision of the character and then suddenly had to settle into another one did you does that does that was that does it strike you a problem or anything there seems to be a certain double standard of who gets recast and who doesn't paddy constantine just gets more makeup put on him um but he doesn't he gets to still be in the film and there's a question sort of on aesthetics of like does this affect our viewing pleasure or change some of the issues and there's probably just another issue of just like labor and like why why do some actors get 10 episode gigs and other actors get three or four episode gigs and it seems to be largely gendered as to who mm. decides that so i don't know a, a point mm. of discussion that was accusation number one mm. uh, no it's, yeah i absolutely agree but chris you're the expert on age <laughs> well i can tell you personally aging but yeah i don't know if they, are they digitally de-aged I'm not sure any 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 digital lines on no Paddy? well um i think did you spot i think chris or i think it's more well i don't know there are moments of his death scene where i thought oh, this feels like there are some digital sort of augmentations to, to, to show a sort of withered withered face. But you're absolutely right, you know, writing and researching and writing about mm. digital de-aging and, and, um, and my next sort of port of call within that area, having written on, on, uh, on the visual element is the sort of sonic element and the de-aged voice. And I'm sort of interested in posthumous voice work right. and, and especially within kind of animated franchises where one keeps Paul Newman's voice on file and to, to reconjure him in the latest installment of cars and all this kind of stuff so i'm interested in in the in the posthumous voice in 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 that sense but i suppose visual de-aging or digital de-aging the virtual recreation of you stuff that we've um i guess touched on in in some form in in previous episodes yes it's certainly open to kind of why or is is certainly part of a wider industry double standard you know if you're not if you're not meryl streep mm. judy dench or helen mirren you're probably not going to be in a film okay mm. Right. Well, well, that's accusation <laughs> number one. Accusation <laughs> number uh, number two, and then and then I'll get I'll get positive again. Is this is a genuine open question? I don't think I know the answer to this because I think I could go two ways on it. But it seems to me that 
we talk about this idea of tragedy and, and, and we know where this is going and, and it's nice to have this sense of, of an ending and all this sort of stuff. Is it? There's a line in episode nine which really struck me in thinking about the kind of feminist stakes at, at play in this in this kind of slightly more liberating, radical mode of, or at least more expressive mode of female identity. And I can't remember who says it, but it's said to Alison, who I think is a really fascinating character, and it said... Um, you don't, you know, she's, she's sort of appealing that she's doing her best and she's trying to work within the system and she's trying to, you know, get 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 as much power as she can, but her power is limited. And someone says to her, um, you, you don't have the desire to be free. You have a desire to make a window in the wall of your prison. Mm. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting line. Obviously, uh, actually, I think it's said by... Oh, the, 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 the sort of, the, 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 the it's, Renis. it's Renaria or it's, Renaris, yeah, it's the, right, um, the sort of older, yeah, wife of the sea dragon. Yeah. Renis. The wife of the sea dragon, yeah. the, the, the aunts of, um, of our, of our protagonist and the, the, the queen that was denied yeah, her throne. So, that's the one. so it's obviously spoken with that yeah. position of tragedy. So I wonder if, could we, could we, cause could we throw, given that we know that this will end in tragedy and given that we know where this is going, is it safer to be provocative, to allow women in this world more agency within a, you know, given that we know it ultimately Daenerys is going to fuck everything up. <laughs> for, for you know, it, uh, uh, is there a risk that what we're actually talking about here is a window in a prison rather than true liberation? It seems like the stakes are higher when we don't know where it's going, because that means there's a possibility that women actually might save this world. Mm. When we know they don't, it feels safer in kind of, you know, traditional uh, power structures. Mm. I know, it's a good... accusation number two. No, no, it's a good question because that scene really struck me. And in fact, re-watching 9 and 10, she's so powerful. Do you remember the Diana Rigg character in Game of Thrones? I can't remember her name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, she was... Lady... um, Lady What's-Her-Face... she was um yes the yes, yes. anyway she was the one who <laughs> eats a lot of fruit yes she's the one who um, <laughs> always had these pearls of wisdom and it looks like that this character renis or renis whatever her name is yeah. she is that woman because right at the beginning she says um it's, it's like from episode eight and i can't remember where it comes from in that episode she says oh they'd sooner do something than let a woman take the throne it's like she's the voice of reason um, and then she says in that scene to Alison, you know, you, you say you're going to be free, but you build a wall of men. You know, it's like her father, her husband and her son. And so she's never really going to be free. And yet with Renaris, you see that actually she faces off her uncle husband and, you know, she is going to get her own way in the end because actually she is the true queen. We all know that, and we all know that Alison has done a bit when the king was dying and she's kind of misinterpreted his words or whatever. Um, so I think, I, I, oh, I don't know, I think that if you were to let women have more power, but I think what we're going to see is that they will take more power and then get crushed by patriarchy the way we always mm. are. And I think that's the thing it's going to be, and I think that is going to be the tragedy. Because watching House of the Dragon, I mean, this is going to sound really poverty, but I always look back at, you know, pre-industrial Britain, women were goddesses. You know, we were actually worshipped. We were at the top of the tree because, of course, everybody needed food and grain and fertility and all of that. 
So women were revered. And then along comes the industrial, the Bronze Age, they make weapons and then the men take over and the rest, as they say, is history. And I think what you're seeing here is a kind of brief flowering of the pre-industrial times, even though clearly they've all got swords, so it's not pre-industrial. But um, I think we're seeing like the before of the terrible, terribleness of Game of Thrones. And this was a moment, I hope, that women are allowed some kind of agency in this world, unruly or not. But, you know, their power is established through the dragons, through the power to give birth and, you know, get up and then start a war at the end of it or not. You know, I mean, it's just... <laughs> and, I, and going back to that scene as well, I mean, Renera, she's like, you know, in the time of her worst loss, she's got to make all of these big decisions. You know, she's, if anyone's gone back to work after having a baby... You know, you'll know how tough it is. It is a nightmare because you're trying to just, you know, get back on the horse, forget you've got a baby at home, that kind of thing. And she's had to give birth to a dead baby and then just, you know, pick herself up, burn the baby and then become queen and then take power. So you're seeing her at the point where she should be at her weakest, but actually she's at her most powerful. So it's really mixed feelings for her and a really mixed message. You know, how are women going to, how are they going to get to where they are? But, you know, go back to Game of Thrones. Daenerys could only be that powerful because she had no children. You know, that was it. She, she lost her child and that's when she came into her power. So maybe we're going to see, I mean, she has got children, so it's not that, but maybe we're going to see this with Rhaenerys. And I think, you know, let's talk about the names, Daenerys, Rhaenerys. You know, there's something going on there that you can see that this is where Daenerys gets her kind of welly from, yeah? Well, fire in her blood, I should say, not welly, yeah. But isn't it interesting, though, that, that if I remember rightly, in in episode, I can't remember if it's... Is the, is the stillbirth in nine or ten? Is it nine? Can't remember. No, it's ten. Uh, it's ten. It's ten. Yeah, yeah, ten. Yeah, yeah. Ten, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Beginning the next of episode contains scenes of yeah. yeah. Um, it, the 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 childbirth is cued by hearing news of her father. Her father. Yeah. Father's, father's death. Yeah. Death. Father's death. And also, and and the usurping of her uh, throne. And so I, yeah. that I thought I, I was. I wondered whether that was. What does that mean in terms of her relationship with with her family or her place within her family? And obviously, you know, symbolically, you you, you know, it's the, the the childbirth is is connected to that scene with regards to, to loss. But it seemed it seemed an intriguing rational well not rational but intriguing moment to have that revealed that her that her future is usurped or that she is usurped, so her future becomes more unstable. So that that then manifests in her childbirth in the childbirth scene where she kind of doesn't want any help from all of these she mm. some quite quite midwives that are standing around going you need to you know she she wants to kind of do it on her own so there's obviously mm. there's obviously something and this is going to sound really obvious but there is obviously something very tragic about that not not the outcome of mm. the, the birthing scene itself but the 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 moments leading up to this where she's really isolated I think she's kind of framed by the window or she's sitting right by the window um, mm. and just this sort of lost so I, I really like this this idea of sort of women at war with their at war with their bodies because they are yeah. going to give birth to people who will go on to go on to fight and then obviously her other son you know son dies at the end so I don't know there's just something really these the kind of the, the idea of this this the female body is that has always been 
is a space of monitoring and a battleground and all the sorts of things that we know about the way that women are portrayed in in, in media. Um, uh, and there, and so actually, it maybe does link to this idea of sort of the mm. aging. One would think that that female bodies would be the perfect site for digital de aging, given the way that female bodies are often mm-hmm. subject to these kinds of modifications within advertising and fashion industries and so forth. So it seems like the female body is this is always a body that's worked upon, and it is surprising that digital de aging isn't isn't a technique afforded to, to women in the same way. Mm. Um, and this actually shows that process in a different way that unruliness is something that that is yeah kind of a lot more it's a lot more complex and is is and i think the way that that unruliness is often understood is through this kind of cultural transgression um of behavior in a way that draws attention to the very boundaries that are being itself transgressed this this is not a cultural unruliness this is something a lot more physical and physicalized and um and and has these external forces that play through her. So she's sort of, yeah, she's this site of, of different sorts of, of, of forces. And I, and I really liked that and, and found it very sad, actually, and very, very, yeah. very moving, even, even before the, yeah. the, the, the sort of, even before she gave birth, the whole sort of lead up to it, where she's really pushing people away. Um, and that then, that then, you know, a lot happens to her in episode 10 on that basis. So, loss is something that is sort of cut through her like like a stick of rock mm. but yeah i i thought that was quite quite kind of moving and and for a series that is i always in, i'm always in, in the same way i'm always interested when comedy series do pathos and think they do it really well these moments of sort of stillness mm. in in series that are mm. all about mobility and and and, and characters that are m- mounting dragons to flood you know there's there are these moments of quite yeah, quite yeah. somber stillness so moments of stillness in fantasy mm. where you're like how is this 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 sort of ravaged body that 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 doesn't doesn't kind of know how to to work again i guess i think the thing um i mean i think it's a really good point because i think that the i mean my i always come back to this i'm quite, i'm still really inarticulate probably with rage about it <laughs> but the you know i just feel like the thing that women have got that men don't is that we have children you know bottom bottom line you can't do it without us we can't do it without you although who knows what's going to happen in the future but and i think that's part of this this fear the fear of the mother and and it's and, and i think it's so tied in chris to what you're saying about the de-aging and the and how women's bodies are always um altered in some way or you know they have to be young they have to be beautiful because there is this idea that once women move past their childbearing years they become like diana brig character or like um rainness who you know they've got nothing left to lose you can't control me anymore you know and i think that's the thing that's such a threat to patriarchy that the you know the crone the older woman the postmenopausal woman all of these women they are dangerous you know and i don't know if they are i am but I don't know if they all are. It's, um, <laughs> but I think it's the fear of patriarchy. And that's what I love about these series is that, that you know, it is about, you know, I know, however many hundreds of years ago when there were dragons, oh my God, I wish there were still dragons. I'd have one downstairs parked outside. What yeah. a way to travel. But it's like, it, it's almost, I mean, it, again, go back to um, when Rhaenyra is having the baby and it's cut with a dragon. Her dragon has got like five babies 
And so it's almost she absorbs the pain of Rhaenyra, who's going to lose her baby. So it, it kind of, again, it's, it's like that harnessing that power that women hold, that patriarchal will never be able to control. And I think, that, you know, you, where you see Roe versus Wade has been overturned, you see, you know, abortion is illegal in so many countries now. And, you know, the women's rights that are going on in Iran, people being executed for protesting. It's all about women. You know, all of these things come back to women and the way women are treated in patriarchy. And I think, you know, shows like House of Dragon, Game of Thrones, they're a really good window into it. I, I was struck by having having not a background in Game of Thrones and, and not knowing much about, uh, you know, trying to spend 110 episodes avoiding dragons. Here we are. But um, there is something I was interested in a way that the... the the dragons themselves are used, are used but not overused, actually, in the series. And yeah. the sort of the way that they nuance certain things. And I was trying to write down instances of where they sort of, sort of appear. I put they kind of accent the action. They're often, they're often yeah. used. I don't yeah. know. And actually, the 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 moment where that the coronation is disrupted by. By, mm-hmm. by a, a dragon coming through the 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 floor and and i i just thought you know that the way that dragons one could throw money at the series and have dragon fights all the time actually and one one would really love that spectacle and but there's something around the way that dragons are often used seen or not seen or seen in silhouette um partially mm-hmm. seen and i really liked that in certainly in the final two episodes that sort of lead up to this final dragon on dragon fight where where you're not seeing everything and there's dragons are so many things they are they are mm. um yeah kind of nuancing certain kinds of behavior they are practical um tools they are unseen threats one often sees uh, hears them without seeing them and and i thought mm-hmm. i thought yeah i like the way that the, the the series is sort of using but not overusing essentially something that you could argue this is where the, the money is the money is the realization of the mm. the dragons this is what i mean about linking to, mm. to dinosaurs in histories of animation and and going back from gertie the dinosaur right up to jurassic park the, the site of technology i want to know where the money is i want to mm. see the money i want to see the blockbuster economics and i'm going to see it in the realization of of the of the the dinosaur i didn't get that with game of, with um house of the dragon i didn't get that as a sort of this is the thing you've been waiting for. There was just sort of brooding the whole way through, and I really liked that. Um, that yeah. sort of fluctuating visibility of yeah. the of the dragons. It seemed that the, the the makers knew really knew when to when to when to use them in these really important kind of punctuation marks throughout certain kinds of of scenes. That's no, true. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that they they seem to be really nicely equated with power, agency, liberality, and ability to kind of break free of these structures. There's a little, there's another little line where they're plotting the war, where Rhaenyris, the older cousin, they're saying like, "We'll send a flock of armies to to deal with these people, and we'll send a convoy over here, and we we'll, we need to block up this bit of the sh- yeah, of the yeah, harbour yeah, yeah. so that we can siege King's Landing." And she just sort of says, "Oh, I'll do that with my dragons." So mm. It's like we'll send a thousand people over here, a hundred. Over there and one woman and her dragon will go and uh, deal with that bit and it's like this kind of really it's not spoken about that much it's not over egged but it's kind of that like very nice sort of um way of of saying a lot whilst kind of throwing away the detail of of warfare through this individualized mm. sitting on the back of dragons mm. um, yeah well don't forget as well in the first season of game of thrones we didn't even see the dragons you know yeah, she, yeah, she yeah. carried her dragon eggs around with her everywhere 
Um, and it wasn't until the very end of the very last episode where she emerges from her funeral pie with the baby dragons. They were so cute. And, and then like in the second season, you see them growing up. And, and also, you know, Game of Thrones. It's Daenerys and her dragon that lays waste to um, Cersei and all of that. I mean, she just goes mad with her dragon. You don't need an army. All the way through, all she's got to do is click her fingers and get her dragons in, and they totally obey her. Mm. So you could, I, I think this is like, you know, the birth story or whatever. This is where it comes from. This is a time when there were more dragons than there were in Game of Thrones. So they actually can just, just throw money at it. Having said that, mm. did anybody notice how clumsy the dragons are when they come to Earth? I mean, I'm, I just find them really, you know, in the, the air, they're so graceful and they're so powerful. Obviously, they're powerful on Earth as well. But when they land, it's like, and then they go along and these sticky, weird arms, you know, stunted, like bat kind of arms. And they're just so ungainly on when they're on the Earth. But when they're flying, they're majestic. Yeah, I don't know. Is it just me? Yeah. Could they not have made them a bit more graceful? No, you're right. I had noticed that. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, there's this sort of um, down to earth of the thud in, in a kind of literal yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. We're getting short on time. I think one thought, final thing I'd like to discuss if we have time to very quickly, which is we've talked a lot about the character of, of, of Renera. Um, we haven't talked as much about Alison, only to sort of say what she's getting wrong in the in the show. But I thought I think Alison's just a quick character we should speak mm. a little bit about because I just I, I, I found that that pairing I thought both characters were really you know interesting mm. and complicated and and does that thing that that Game of Thrones characters often do which is sort of you know you'd struggle to say either of them are good people uh in the sort of traditional sense of the word but they certainly feel real and mm. and like you know complicated contradictory human beings and I, and I found that with Alison in a way Alison's sort of a slightly more human version of Cersei in a way she's sort of up to similar tricks and has similar vices mm. um I guess her her fault you know she's a character with great compassion a character with great remorse for her situation but a character who's also ambitious you know and 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 is sort of caught in that paradox between thinking that she wants her son on the throne for her own protection and thinking she wants her son on the throne because that gets her closer to the throne. You know, I don't know. I, I thought she was an interesting character and just worth dwelling on for a second. Mm, no, I agree. I, it's funny because I always think of her more like Caitlin Stark in that she's, um, okay. yeah. you know, she's got really very little power. I mean, she's the daughter of the King of the Hand. or Is that what he's called? Yeah, the yeah. Hand, oh, yeah. Hand of yeah. the King. Hand, Hand of the King. Yeah, King of the yeah, Hand, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she's daughter no, of no. Hand of the King <laughs> and does what she needs to do in order to get some power. So, yeah, you're right. You know, like Cersei, she's working her angle. But And again, what I think you're seeing is the two versions. You know, Rhaenyra's, she's the, the true-born heir and Alicent is kind of nothing. And how is she going to get some power in this terrible world where otherwise she would have none so you have to marry somebody and you know let's not forget we're going on about aging Viserys is quite old when she marries him you know mm. he's not her brother or her uncle which you know let's be glad of some things but he's quite old and so she does <laughs> make you know yeah she kind of steps into this place and then at the end you get the feeling that she really did love him because he's a really nice man you know let's look Back to Viserys, who was a really kind and very fair king. And so she didn't get really a bad deal, did she, to marry him 
she kind of at the beginning she doesn't want to do it but then she's like oh, all right well what else am i going to do can't even watch tv in this world i'll just marry the king mm. um and i think she's struggling all the way through it's such a good performance i always say one olivia Coleman, but it's not it's olivia cook is i mean i think she's just so wonderful in it but she's um yeah, both of those female leads are actually amazing performances because because of the stillness, they're allowed to be still. You're allowed to see relationships that they have. You're actually allowed to see the relationships they have with their children. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to her getting her son on the throne, Aegon, she's, um, mm-hmm. she is like Cersei. She'll do anything for her kids. Yeah. I was thinking about. Uh, I'm going to throw in a Wizard of Oz reference, Alex. You're like this. Uh, you're. That's good. We haven't done one. Well, this no, week, you're so sort, you're sort brilliant. Of, yeah. I know you've talked about the in fantasy that the performers that play two roles or the sort of doubling, where once in the real mm. world, once in the fantasy sure. world, and stuff. And and I sort of not. I I just looked up who Alicent was because I did couldn't remember, and now I now I know. Um, okay. I was I was thinking about the. Uh, these sorts of House of the Dragon in terms of war, warring fa- well, houses, I guess. Or well, in Game of Thrones, isn't it like lots mm. of seven what it? houses? Like the, yeah, yeah, houses. Uh, yeah, houses are sort yeah, of families. Yeah. But sort yeah. of like yeah. what yeah. that yeah, does yeah, yeah, is it yeah. creates that doubling effect because you have these comparisons mm. between all these different. Oh, that's the equivalent. Oh, that's the mm. same. You have the, the the two female leads of equivalent yeah. age. You have this character. You mm-hmm. have Reese fans, and you have Paddy Considine, and you have all these kind of that the these these warring houses allow you to play with that kind of that kind of doubling. And I don't know mm-hmm. what that means for the yeah, spectators' yeah. ability to orient themselves in. A, well, I want to be like that, but not like that, but maybe with a bit of that behavior. Mm. And it seems really interesting that 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 these mm. these narratives of dynasty and family and so forth are structured by these quite explicit parallels that you were talking about, kind of Kim, when comparing um, kind of these female characters, the equivalents. I don't know. It just seemed that like there was an in- interesting pro- yeah. that that a, f- a fantasy with its ability to conjure these kinds of worlds creates that sort of mm. parallel doubling effect that obviously the wizard of oz does quite mm. explicitly in so many fantasy films that you will be able to tell me do quite explicitly but that sort of casting mm. trope of your hooks or your or even jumanji yeah. where the mm. guy is the, the hunter is the dad as a sort of playful um nod to, to peter pan it just seemed that these kinds of expansive worlds these expansive it's not about world building it's about family building actually um create the opportunity for some really intriguing parallels between and 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 different um i guess i was gonna say structures of feeling but i'm not gonna say that um different registers of (laughs) registers of of empathy let's call it that between different um different warring Mm. families but i'm i'm pleased to have been carried along in this episode with you because i don't think i'd have you are you are the you are the proverbial <laughs> dragon upon which I've ridden over the last hour because I'm definitely yeah, <laughs> was, was definitely going to struggle. So <laughs> thank you. Before you go, very quickly tell us about your your book. Uh, it's upcoming. It'll be out next summer. So if listeners are listening in the future, it will already be out and available. So and the book's called Mothers on American Television from Here to Maternity. Um, there's a chapter on Game of Thrones, I assume, from you. Yes, of course. And, and it just feels like a like a proper talk show. I've got a book to plug. Go for Although it. that's not why you got yep. me on here. I oh, know exactly. I'm going to read out social media accounts in a minute. Oh, all of it. good um. on you. <laughs> I know. So the book has been um, ten years in the writing. I mean, it goes from 
Sex and the City up to Big Little Lies. And it principally okay. follows HBO. Um, it's got the ad adaptations in there. So it's kind of, it's an entwined history of how HBO have portrayed the mothers in their TV series. Um, it's about patriarchy, politics, politics of the TV industry. I mean, it's just, it's taken me such a long time to write and it's such a relief to get it out there. Um, Great. So yeah, I'm looking forward to going through the proofreading stage and getting rid of it. Yay! <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to reading it and I'm, and I'm sure listeners are too. Uh, thank you. Welcome, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org, read our weekly blog post. Do we have anything on Game of Thrones in the archive, Chris? No, but we do have a little, little shout out to the book. So Ben Tyra's chapter on VFX and yes. Game of Thrones from the, before we were a podcast and a blog, we were a book. And in that from book... the prequel book. Uh, yeah, yeah. That birthed uh, the podcast, yeah, absolutely. Yes, so okay. a chapter on VFX and, and sort of, yeah, synthetic realism and, and fantastic supplements by the wonderful Ben Tara. So that, that will go in the further reading for this week. Anything we mentioned you want us to cover in a bit more detail? Remember, we record our footnote episodes every other week and you can email your suggestions at fananimresearch. That's F-A-N-A-N-I-M research at gmail.com. And you can use the same handle to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Take part in the conversations there um, as well. Otherwise, that's been us for another episode and we'll see you next time. Bye.